0: No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Joining me today are James Sink, AIA Lead AP, DBIA, Design Principal, and Nicholas Casolari, AIA Senior Project Manager, both with HMC Architects in Ontario, California. James and Nicholas both work primarily from HMC's Ontario Higher Education Studio. James is passionate about the intersection of creativity, intellectual pursuit, and the ability to positively impact people's lives. He has over 23 years of experience in higher ed design. His experience spans all aspects of a campus environment, including student housing, athletic complexes, and academic buildings. With 14 years of experience, Nicholas has worked on many new construction and modernization projects at college and university campuses. He has been involved in all project phases from planning through construction administration. His involvement in the design process focuses on working closely with the client and design team to oversee the deliverables production and ensure that the client's expectations are met. Spending the last 12 years of his career focusing solely on higher ed projects, he finds working on university campuses to be one of the most rewarding aspects of his career. The project we are going to talk about today is the California State University Fullerton Residence Halls. The $99.1 million, 185,505 square foot housing project leverage is building mass and landscape to create an insulated community to serve 600 sophomores and juniors. The facility provides diverse spaces that will support a wide variety of programmed and unexpected experiences. Due to the location of the project site, the university wanted to ensure the new phase four housing project connected back to the rest of the housing community while still tying into the core of the campus. Initially, there was concern about anonymity and lack of identity with combining three houses into a single building. So, the design build team of HMC Architects and Sunt Construction created three distinct wings, each with secure points of entry and a unique lounge. From the exterior, one can easily point to their house, while each tower is given its own identity with different names, layouts, and floor plans. While the building functions as a single unit, its exterior massing is read as three distinct wings. Two northern wings and a single southern wing are connected by a bridge at each upper level, acting as a physical and social connector. The bridge and upper-level common spaces overlook an open plaza, a sloped lawn with stepped amphitheater seats to the west, and an intimate courtyard for residents to the east on the ground floor. The design incorporates a school's colors and an angular motif from hexagonal patterns found on the campus's mid-century buildings to unite the interior and exterior architecture. To activate a rich, diverse, and flexible community, the design team incorporated a student lounge, laundry and mailroom, administrative offices for the staff, and a 3,700-square-foot multipurpose room to host events. The building's target lead silver equivalent and a 15% reduction from California's T24 energy performance requirements. The expansion aims to boost the school's image from vantage points around campus, the surrounding community, and the adjacent freeway. By creating a distinct residential identity for sophomore and junior students, the modern building will provide a much improved student life experience to support their success. Added housing on campus is also a plus for the environment, with more students utilizing carbon-neutral transportation. In August, just last month, California State University Fullerton cut the ribbon on its new residence halls. Why don't we just start with a little history? What is the story behind this project? You know, what was the need that drove doing it in the first place and how did that um, influence your your process and vision in your design?
1: There's been a big push in the last decade or a half, decade and a half for the first year experience on college campuses. So they, they realize they want to address that need for engagement for first year students early, early on. So uh, because doing that sets them up better for success in retention and graduation later. What this project is focused on is... But what's next after the first-year experience happens? Then what? There's still Now there's second-year and third-year and fourth-year students and fifth-year and sixth-year students sometimes. This project looks at the second-year to third-year student and says, what are the needs of those students beyond the first-year experience? Right, The first-year experience is all about bridging from home because there's about, what, two months that separates a high school graduate and a freshman in college. That's not a lot of time to grow up. So the first year is all about that. Now that they've had that year, getting to know themselves and how to live more autonomously, this project looks at how to drive identity and sort of self-sustenance and next-level independence within the collegiate experience.
0: How about, paint me a verbal picture of this building. Give me some of the stats to where I could come up with at least some kind of visual image in my head of it.
2: The building itself is located on the perimeter of campus right near a major Southern California freeway. So just to the north of the site, you have the existing student housing and dining. To the west, you have classroom buildings, there's the engineering building to the south, there's a parking structure and then to the east is the major freeway, uh, 57 freeway that I mentioned. So the building itself consists of 185,000 square feet, six stories, and it's essentially three separate towers that are connected with a bridge in between. Probably describe it best as like a lowercase h in plan. With that, it creates essentially a small private courtyard in the interstitial space of that h, and then beyond that, a larger public courtyard that then feeds out towards the rest of campus. So as far as materials, it The goal was to really tie it to the classic brutalist modernism that's already on the Cal State Fullerton campus. So we have plaster. um, There's a little bit of metal panel that's used for accent, but then we have large sections of cast and plates, concrete, large format tile. So again, really tying back to the language that's already set at Cal State Fullerton.
0: You know, you just said something right by the freeway. Was that an issue for noise? And say, yeah, I see heads nodding. You guys can't see this, but I see heads nodding. Tell me about what you did about that.
2: Yeah, it was an issue. We had an acoustician on board that helped with some of the preliminary design concepts. Uh, we did some sound studies. But throughout the course of the project, I mean, that was one of the biggest concerns that probably the college had was how noisy are these rooms going to be uh, when the students? Because I'd say, James, what, we're a couple hundred yards away from the freeway? Tops, if that. If oh, that that, wow. Yeah, Jeez. so it's... Feet. (laughs) Feet.
1: A couple hundred feet. Yeah. A
2: couple hundred feet. Okay. We'll go with a couple hundred feet then away from the freeway. But we had taken measures, um, our windows, uh, the dual pane windows on there. Once you actually get into the space, if you are in those rooms that are the closest to the freeway, it's like a very mild hum. And in talking with the housing director about that, he said, you know what? This is actually perfect. He said, I have people that come from major cities that come from, say, for example, New York." And if we put them in one of the housing complexes that is actually too quiet, they feel uncomfortable. They need a little bit of that white noise. So that's not to say when you're in, in these spaces that they're very noisy, but there is a little bit of that white noise there. And he said, this is almost the perfect solution for housing. Those students that come from those larger cities that need that almost comfort from home, call it.
1: We also oriented every bedroom window away from the freeway. So they're all, they all have operable windows, but... Uh, no window faces the the freeway itself. That perfectly also aligns with um, the sustainability approach of just the nice east-west orientation that we want in Southern California.
0: Nice. Tell me about some of the spaces in this building.
1: At the ground floor, the first space you come to is probably the most dramatic space in the project. And it's this large multi-purpose room at the base of this housing tower. And in order to achieve that, the campus said, well, we really don't want columns in this space. We said, yeah, and you're at the base of a concrete structure that has a bunch of columns coming down. So there's only one choice. And we have these wonderfully elegant, now hidden uh, six foot deep concrete beams that span this space and take all the load of the building down so that this 3,000, 4,000 square foot space is totally column free.
0: Nice.
1: And it has this wonderful glass facade to the south, connects to a very open, flexible courtyard. One of the things we did with the design, the library and some of the old iconic buildings on campus have a hexagonal kind of a mid-century look to them or motif. And we pulled that motif into the project. So the metal panel on the exterior has this slight V to it. We have the ceiling tiles in the NPR are parallelograms with lights on a chevron pattern. So this motif weaves itself all the way through paint patterns upstairs as well. Along the, at the base, we have a, a variety of different spaces that support students, but also support the operations of housing too. And so there's there's a need for you know custodial, landscape, storage, and space like that. So that that is there. But we also have two staff apartments that serve the needs of the students who live there. And that's a very typical thing we see in student housing, where professional staffers are living on where the students are. So they're easily accessible. It provides a little bit of level of comfort for the parents. And they live there. They can have families that are also living where 600 students are living. And then we have Res Life offices as well. So this building houses the core of Res Life for Cal State Fullerton. So there's a lot of neat connection there because the student life program is being driven at the base of this building. The, oh, there's also, I forgot to mention, there's probably the best space. It has this student commons right, right at the heart. At the base of this bridge that interconnects all three wings is this very neat student lounge space with a custom graphic elephant on the wall. It's like Instagram moment. another project. People come in and you can see them taking pictures with the elephant immediately. Super cool. Um, as the building rises up off space, each level is identical. So we stack the floors perfectly for uh, ease of construction and cost considerations. We're catering to the second and third year students. So these are units, there's like mini apartments that have four bedrooms that are each doubles with a small kitchenette and privatized bathrooms. The quarter culture that begins to develop there is connected, connects these units with lounge spaces that exist on every house. So each house of 40 students uh, has their own lounge space and there's a study room associated with each each of those houses as well. So we're, we're building community at the ground floor and then as it rises up, there's the sense of autonomy and the sense of community as well
0: let's get a little technical for a minute let's talk about some of the systems in the building the enclosure, the MEP the roofing. what are some of the technical components you chose for this building and why did you why did you choose them?
2: Being in California we have to abide by title 24 which is actually a part of the California building Code and for those of you that don't know California has its own building code that is derived from the the ibc and the title 24 is the part of the cbc the california building code and lays out the energy efficiency standards for new and existing buildings so a lot of what some other states might deem as possibly innovative or energy saving features are already built into this title 24 code so for example we have more stringent requirements for walls and roofs our roofs i believe are or excuse me our walls i believe are r19 insulation and we use a fluid applied weather barrier on that roofs are r30 we have to use a light colored pvc roof in california so for example we used white over a majority of the roof but then some of those lounge spaces that james was talking about we have windows that view out to the lower roof level so we actually used a light gray to help reduce some of the reflection or refraction into the windows and help to mitigate some of the glare So we have things um, pretty standard. All lighting is LED. James mentioned the natural ventilation that's in each of the units Uh, that's tied into the building management system. So each of the units have an operable window in them that they can choose whether or not they're open. When we were walking around the building during the first week, I was going to say it was probably in the high seventies, low eighties, and I saw a good portion of the windows already open. So students really enjoy having that kind of fresh air coming into each of the rooms and then through the spaces. Buildings on a campus loop for hydronics and that ties back into the central plant. There's no natural gas in this project at all. It's all electric and so we have an on-site generator and generator yard to support all of that.
0: So in designing this building, okay we already know you had to make things work next to a freeway but you're adding onto an existing campus, what were some of the challenges and complexities in actually figuring out how this building was going to go down, where it was going to go on the site, what the towers or the spaces were going to be like, what were some of the challenges you faced in making it work on this existing site the way you wanted it to?
1: This project is phase four for Cal State Fullerton. So there are three project phases that preceded us, and each of them stretched along the western edge of the 57 Freeway. Each are focused in and around this, the first year student experience. And at the south end of those phases is the Gastronome, which is the central dining hub for all of the community. This project is going on the south side of the dining hall, and its loading dock faces our site. So. We had all these peripheral considerations and and contextual challenges. And then on top of that, we had to kind of ask the big question of what is the meaning of this project? Is it the next extension of that community? Because it's severed by this large dining hall. And we said, no, actually, this isn't an extension of the first year community. This is about the second, third year students. It has a character, personality, site positioning that is to itself, and it's thought of as The first of maybe a potential future phase as well, adjoining it. So we positioned the building such that it didn't try to link up to the preceding phases. It stands on its own. There's a large courtyard when you come to the project from the main campus from the west. You know, has that nice kind of concrete, flexible program space that connects to that NPR. But it also has this really neat turf area with concrete uh, seat walls and a big berm that protects the viewshed from the parking lot to the south. So that courtyard felt like it needed to face south for light and daylight and to be kind of warm uh, throughout the year and not face the loading dock to the north. So that kind of big question was a challenge in the beginning and really just to understand the basic. Need of what this project needs to be for students.
2: To add to that, when you're talking about that berm, one thing that we discussed during the design was in the event that they want to eventually build or extend part of that student housing there, what was going to be the most economical means to do that? So it was an earth built up amphitheater. If in the event the housing project ever extends further to the south, it's something very easily that can be demolished and with very little impact to kind of the existing design.
0: Okay. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about this multi-purpose room. I am not a lover of columns in the middle of a room, not at all, but I know, especially a concrete building, how challenging that can be because you have to support the building. Can you talk to me a little bit about technically how how that got designed?
2: Essentially, we had to start with a very open plan and we ended up with cast-in-place concrete columns that were about three feet by two feet, spaced about every 15 to 20 feet. And then the six-foot deep beams that James had mentioned, it was definitely some some gymnastics from our structural engineer, especially given the fact that we're in California and have quite the seismic loads that need to be taken into
1: consideration. The basic building block of, the, of this is this concrete post-tensioned structure so solving for gravity was certainly the probably the most expensive part of the solution for this NPR so you know the columns themselves coming down through the space needing to span across these six foot beams that were functioning like bridges then the lateral design for this we couldn't drop a shear wall down the middle either so the house of cards needs these shear walls on the ends and spread throughout and so we also had to like approach the lateral design very differently because you can't in student housing, like you can't put 30 foot long shear walls along the exterior of a, of a building because there's bedroom windows everywhere. There's nowhere to go. So, our solution for this project and the other wings was to place it down the middle of the corridor so we wouldn't interrupt the bedroom window. But because of the NPR, we really just had to bring the the shear walls to the exterior uh, where we could. We integrated it into one of those upper-level lounges. So that particular wing has a very unique character to it at the entry to the community. And that's the neat thing is that each of these houses, on every floor, there's three of them, have a very unique character to these lounges. And that's sort of the outward expression of the home for these students.
0: Were there any particularly unique products that you used in this building that you chose for whatever reason.
1: We started designing this in the fall of 2019, and it paused for a moment, came back to it about February of 2020, and then COVID hit. And that changed everything about this project. We were instantly over budget. Nothing changed. We were just 15% over because of all the weird things going on in the industry with crews having to go through cleaning procedures and and the the length of shifts and like everything just changed. And so there was so much uncertainty in the market that we had to pivot really quickly to get ourselves back aligned to budget. So because this is a design build project, uh, we were able to do that really quite quickly. It wasn't easy, but we did it. So because of that pandemic, it did shift a bit how we were able to specify and then execute materials.
2: We actually started building the the main structure itself, call it. We had what's called the make ready package where we started the site work back in December of 2020. And then that got most of the site work and some of the initial concrete up. So we were actually building more of the shell finishes interiors. We didn't start that until June of 2021. And the building just opened last month. So coupled with a global pandemic, you also have a truncated schedule of putting together 185,000 square foot building in about 13, 14 months. So we had an issue where quite a few materials that we specified were just not available, or their lead times on them were so long that they would drastically impact the schedule and prevent us from having this fall 2020 opening. So we had times where we would specify a material, it would get approved. And then a week or so later, we'd have to get a substitution that would then get approved. And then we'd have to go and find a third one. I mean, this was happening from things from metal studs down to drywall tape. Even we had to get substitution requests on because we could not get these materials. But some of the bigger materials that we used were like the porcelain tile, like I mentioned, the composite metal panels. Those were readily available. And going back to one of your questions about one of the unique designs that we used with the metal panels, and this is something we actually held very strong to, and luckily the metal panels were procured very early on in the construction process. But we created this series of kind of geometric shapes with the composite metal panels. So most people think of composite metal panels being very rectilinear or orthogonal. Well, we had a series of call them almost like chevrons or v's again tying back to the campus architecture and we created these trapezoidal windows from this as well and it's really kind of almost the only place we use metal panel on the on the project and it's right as you come into the main courtyard and it really kind of creates this beautiful and iconic facade for the structure as you walk in and really gives it its own kind of sense of identity really separating it from some of the other buildings on campus but still using that same language and tying back to the the rest of the campus architecture.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about what it's like working on public work and how that affects how you design in your decision making process throughout?
1: The purpose of the Cal State system is to serve the local communities. They're located in that for that reason, the admissions processes are designed for that. And so we're, we are designing for students who are often first gen students into college and from a demographics that um, can be unique to both private and public. And it's not to say that the mission and purposes for privates are any different than that, but it is far more in our in our front of view, thinking about designing for that student. I'm a product of public institution as, as is Nicholas. So we're all too familiar with what that means. I wish my college for my kids cost what my mom paid for mine. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the nineties, it would oh, be don't amazing. do
0: get me started on
1: that one. <laughs> That's the topic that we're talking about, though—the affordability of colleges. Right? You look at wages in the in the country, and you look at cost of college. They're not; those lines are diverging in the wrong way. So it's a big deal. We are designing for for that for affordability. Every president is talking about that. How do we attract the best and brightest, regardless of where they come from? So we're looking at very you know economic systems being very efficient and being keen about what the materials we're choosing and, and how we're impacting costs because the budget's fixed. We're working with the builder. There is no such thing as an overrun. We're not going back to a donor to go ask for more money. That's a fundamental difference. And you know how these buildings are funded are, is very different than a private institution. So we have that need to satisfy the budget. Well, when you think of a
2: private project you essentially have one person that you really kind of need to appease and that is the the owner you need to follow the code and uphold to the standards but when you work with a a public university like this we have the owner but then you have the cal state system itself you have the state fire marshal you have a local fire marshal you have a structural review board a mechanical review board a division of the state architect. I think we're what is that six, seven different agencies we had to submit drawings to at multiple phases of the project. So you're receiving comments back from all these different agencies at the same time, and you know agency A says something, and agency B says something contradictory, and you're sitting there playing middleman between the two of them, trying to get everybody to play nice in the sandbox. But I'd probably say the the approval processes has to be one of the not the more challenging, but definitely keeps you on your toes
1: uh, as a project manager. There's another aspect to working in public work through the design build process in that it actually makes it feel a little bit more like private work in the sense that it gives the teams more flexibility to think creatively, to think less prescriptively. So we are looking at performance-based specifications versus prescriptive, where we are able to question standards and not go below them, but rather look at a different way of solving them. So if it's a if it's an IT infrastructure challenge and there's a certain amount of prescription that happens in the Cal State system for they call them TIP standards, those standards would ask us to place fairly large rooms up the building in anticipation of future flexibility. They're written they're written for classroom standards and this is student housing. This is a singularly purposed building. We're not going to change it into an academic building in 20 years. It's always going to be student housing. So we're able to look at that prescriptive aspect of what a standard is and say, well, look, performance-wise, we don't need those spaces. We can actually solve that problem with a swing-out rack in a closet. So we're able to function more creatively because it's in the design-build environment. So it actually kind of hybridized in, in a really interesting and creative way. And it, it yields these buildings that are exceptionally better performers for the campus and students.
0: You got to tell me what this, what this contract model looks like. Like how does this design build thing on this building work? Because I'm absolutely fascinated.
1: So we're functioning in the progressive design mode or CSU calls it the collaborative design model. So, our method of procurement. So it isn't one where it's a stipulated sum where we're designing the project and each team's competing with a design set to a budget and they, the campus chooses the team and project they like the best. This is calls-based selection. So we're coming in with a fee and we're coming in with our qualifications. It's a design build entity and they're choosing the team that they want to go work with and design this project. So that's the fundamental difference between like a a more traditional design build and a collaborative design build or also called progressive design build. So within the Cal State system, like this has been a really successful way of working. It hasn't been around forever. It's been maybe 10 years or so, um, but they've looked at a variety of different project types. Student housing happens to be one that's successful in this model.
0: So looking back on this project, what would be maybe your one big lesson learned from this project?
1: The seismic joint is... The most difficult aspect of designing for from a detailing standpoint the visual standpoint sometimes we can't control it it's just the nature of the project size complexity shape but certainly are being very pointed in in a current design phase on a different project what can we do to not have a seismic joint here and you know as we're moving in schematic design moving stairs and elevator cores around like okay how do we how do we think smart so to try to avoid one less joint because when you're dealing with a 12-story building it's a big deal so that to me is sort of a lesson learned because we're already thinking in, in more sophisticated terms about those design decisions nicholas what do you think Shower head locations we tried
2: to be as efficient as possible with locating all of the valves and the heads and come first couple days of moving in turn on the showers in the direction that the water spraying was less than ideal and this was something we were looking at as potentially a simple cost-saving measure of getting everything very uniform and keeping everything along a similar plumbing wall and not having to essentially put a valve on one wall and the head on the other but we used a, a shower unit call it where the head and the valve are all comprised within one and by doing that when you turn on the shower some of the shower sprays out onto the floor. So it's just one of those kind of things that maintenance has now looked at. They've looked at some mitigation measures for that, but in thinking about it if we would have kind of separated those two, sounds like a simple thing, but it, I mean you add cost when you repeat that over 125 units and you start to add more plumbing and additional fixtures, you know, the cost goes up. But I'd say probably that's one of one of the bigger things.
1: Um, fun little thing that happened up the road we finished student housing up on cal poly's campus up the road and uh, they occupied it for about six weeks prior to COVID. then had to vacate and as they came back to live there post pandemic ish many of them brought therapy dogs we didn't design for the dog in the student housing but man it's an issue because there's the policy that says you can bring whatever animal you want within reason. So, like, there's like these 65-pound boxers in these dorm rooms. And, like, it's another, like, layer of, like, amenity for the therapy pet post-pandemic. It's a big, big deal. And the, the mental health, you know, aspects of design are certainly on our forefront now. But designing for the animal is something that's, that's the next project. That's the next lesson learned. Cause that's a whole other thing. Like we're focused on student engagement and all the and the students and students, but like, how about what the students actually need and what they're bringing to campus far out seeds are imaginable ability to predict. So um, that's the next level for us is designing for the dog.
0: Well, there's another next level I learned about with another guest I had recently talking about a building at USC. Uh, Rosa Shang from Smith group was one of my guests and they designed this building with every single thing they did, including the project meetings, everything was just designed with a JEDI agenda. And there are a lot of new things we need to be thinking about and talking about as our time change and as pe- people are becoming more open-minded and more just open in general um, that we didn't have to before and asking those questions and um, being connected with that. Instead of, oh, I've been, you know, I, I did schools at my first firm for 22 years. That's what I cut my teeth in this business on. It was all schools. And it's easy to get into a, I did this, I'm just going to keep, I've been doing this for years. I'm just going to keep doing these same things and not have those conversations with the, not just your owner or not just your contractor, but with the community and the people who are actually going to use that building. Oh wow! Talk to the users. There's some really good design input.
1: Yeah, we there there are no gendered restrooms on the Fulton project. They've evolved, and we evolved with the campus prior to the Fultons project up the road on that topic, and you know held a pizza night and had this experience where. Non-binary students came in and said, "Hey, look, I don't feel safe on campus," and so we asked them a lot of questions about that. What does that mean? Like, they didn't want to even attend the school because they didn't feel like this, these spaces were designed for them, and they weren't. They said, "Hey, can we draw what we think a safe shower is for us?" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely. Here, take the pen." And so they drew they drew the shower, and it was just this compartmentalized changing area. So you're not behind a curtain; you're behind a door, and it was so simple. Well, we took that, we ran through a design-build project, we built their design hundreds of times. On that project, there's non-gendered restrooms throughout the thousand beds. But the idea came from the students, came from the people who didn't feel safe. And now we're just using that as a standard moving forward. We don't even think about it anymore. We just do it.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, almost all of us have had one or two huge moments in our career that were those epiphany moments can both of you just share maybe one thing that was a big game changer for you in your career, at any point in your career?
2: It happened on one of, one of my first CA projects. Um, it was a good-sized project, and we had a contractor that unfortunately was not one of the best, and he was looking for little issues here or there, anything that he could to kind of pin it on the architect or the design team as being poor design. So we had a submittal that was submitted to our electrical engineer, and they called out for brown outlets. So I didn't even know they still made brown electrical outlets anymore. And they had circled that as the option in the submittal. And the electrical engineer didn't catch it, passed it along. I looked at the electrical engineer's comments on the first sheet of the submittal, didn't see anything, said, oh, okay, that's fine lo and behold get out on site one day and i'm walking around and i'm looking i'm like why are there brown outlets everywhere (laughs) and they said well your electrical engineer passed it along and i said oh okay but in our specs we call out white well the submittal came through and said brown fine i guess we have brown outlets well what did we order for the faceplates? oh we ordered white because that's what the spec said so there's a project now in Southern California that has brown outlets and white faceplates and the contractor came back and said that is going to be I think it was a $15,000 change on a 20,000 square foot building call it to change all the outlets from brown to white and the owner looked at us and said are you going to pay $15,000 to change all those outlets from brown to white and I said I don't I don't think the firm's going to cover that and I'm I'm sure my wife's not going to let me write a check for that amount. so (laughs) it is very important just because you're you're electrical engineer any anyone else looks at a submittal you need to put eyes on it and make sure you are flipping through it you do not pass it along or else you are going to end up with brown outlets and white face plates all over a building one day
0: i was listening to you i was like i know exactly where this is going (laughs) Um, because i do i mean i teach that's part of the project delivery education program i teach and my comment back to you was you could have made him change them at his cost because your only responsibility is to review that submittal for general conformance with design intent. Their responsibility is to provide you a submittal that matches the specifications and nothing else.
2: That is correct. And I cited multiple spec sections within the documents that said exactly what you said, but the owner came back to it and the outlets had been installed. And I even noted in the site observation report, brought it up to the owner when they had maybe only gotten a handful of outlets in and this owner said, well, unless you're going to pay that amount, we're just going to let them proceed. And not only did I see the first couple getting installed, I got to keep watching for the next week or two as more and more kept getting installed. I,
0: I'm not OCD but maybe a teeny bit How about you James what's your big lesson learned
1: right out of college I was working on a small project and I was field measuring and drafting and I mismeasured a building by four feet then designed it with the wrong dimension and then realized we were off and had to go explain to the owner why the spaces wouldn't work and fit oh, so no. that was that was pretty messy but the I'd say the most pivotal moment in my career was is back to that pizza night it lit this fire in me about equity and doing what's right. And I don't have any my anybody in my family who that, that might impact directly necessarily. And I do because of my background have a certain amount of privilege that you know I, I carry with me, and and I acknowledge that. Um, but I also feel like it's my job to now fight for equity. And that experience that that campus um, has led me to speak nationally on the topic to choose to opt in and opt out of working with campuses who don't align to those i feel aligned to my value system and in related to equity and i'm taking a more firm stance as i've mature in that subject and i'm just deeply passionate about it so yeah total happenstance pizza night really profoundly affected my my myself the way i teach my kids the way i, I do architecture
0: and it's so funny you say this right now. It's amazing how one experience, I've had plenty throughout my life, and I do have someone in my family that it, this is a very important thing to me, to stand up for people and to, to not have somebody be treated differently. We're all humans. But I happened to be, I, I mentioned I was in LA last weekend, and I flew down there to attend the Lady Gaga concert at Dodger Stadium. Um, with my Pilates instructor, who is a longtime friend, amazing, amazing man, and I cried four times at the, I went to that concert to dance my booty off, um, and I cried four times during that concert, just from the vibe, you know some of the things she said to the audience about you're all safe here and you're all welcome here, whoever you are, whatever your walk of life, just one more in many pivotal moments of seeing how well we can all come together. You know, I I raised my kids with the attitude, you're going to live your life your way, but you can't tell people how to live theirs. But the one thing you can judge people about, are you a good person? Are you a crappy person? Otherwise, fat, skinny, gay, straight, black, white, rich, poor. I've met amazing people because I try not to have any of those boundaries. And if you're a good person, and we click and have something to talk about, let's hang out. <laughs> you know, um, and I think we all grow from that. And I think getting behind that mission, I, I really applaud your firm for getting behind that and, and standing up for it. Because we do all grow when we come together. Designing buildings that help us come together, designing buildings that feel safe for anybody in them are all important things we can all do. We can all do something every day to just be a better planet. So, my final question What is your personal world domination? I call it your world domination statement. And I've been called out on this. Um, It's like, uh, I don't know about world domination. For me, that's a goal. How much can I accomplish in this lifetime? Not that I'm going to take over the world today, at least. Personal or professional, what mark do you hope to leave on the world?
2: I don't know if I can get that philosophical. But one thing I want to say is for like this project occurred during a very difficult time for a lot of people we had individuals on the project that were basically isolated so going to work was something that they looked forward to or they enjoyed because they were around other people and all of a sudden you had people that were just sequestered in their houses and so for me when we had these teams and on other projects it was about making those people feel like they were still part of a family it was still coming together you know we'd have our our long working sessions during the day but then we'd be working at night and really making those people still feel connected because i mean they might not have had a family to go home to but somehow fast and the furious got intertwined in this project and we'd be having these meetings late at night where all of a sudden random fast and furious quotes would come up and we'd end these meetings late at night with i guess there's one line in there where he says we family and we'd end the meeting our meetings at night with We family. So it was always kind of a fun way to end stuff. Just let people know that, you know, we're all connected. And, you know, even though we're not seeing each other in person, that we're all still part of one family. And we called it our Fullerton family.
0: Well, I'll tell you something, Nicholas. I'm a firm believer that it's not the big, grandiose things that truly change the world. The things that really truly change the world and ripple out far beyond anything you'll ever know about are those little things we do for other people. And then somebody comes back to you 10 years later and you did this, or you said this, you know, knowing you're part of this, we family matters your turn, James.
1: I think it's having the courage to be bold and through that comes being memorable. And for those who know me, they know I can like to be the clown and act up and, you know, be unexpected and I do it because I want to get you off your guard and I want to take the walls down because when people smile they they show their true self and they we shed hierarchy and we can talk we can actually talk like people so that's the way I like to be bold and I'm trying to be better at that professionally but personally that's just who I am and I and I love it I have a lot of fun and I attract people around me who who are okay with that and um so maybe i don't want to sound like i'm excusing it i'm actually trying to explain the intentionality behind it because um, i just love bringing smile to people even if i'm acting the fool it, it's okay mm-hmm. i'm all right with that because we have a lot of fun nicholas and i have had a lot of laughs over the time we've spent together uh, he's not even going anywhere near the specifics of that that Fulgin team. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had like hat hat meetings where we'd all have a different different crazy hats on, and you know, buffalo horns and motorcycle helmets, and that was the best time we've ever spent as a team. Having to do it remote was phenomenal. Like, ask any team member, because we laughed so hard, and because we laughed hard, we worked hard and we played hard. It was so much fun.
0: I love that, gentlemen. Thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sherees.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.